Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Global Math Department. My name is Lena Taro, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we're going to be hearing from Rhonda Hewer about creating an inclusive environment using project-based learning in middle school. So uh, I would like to tell you a little bit about how these meetings work, but before I do that, please introduce yourself in the chat window telling us what you teach, where you teach, and what your Twitter handle is if you have one. Um, I recognize right now many of you are teaching from your homes, but where is your teaching environment located? So before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you would use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenter to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Our speaker tonight is Rhonda Heuer. Rhonda is an educator and consultant based in Kitchener, oh dear, I was worried I was gonna mispronounce this, Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Uh, she works with grades one through 12 math and science educators to develop engaging, rich learning experiences for students using inquiry-based frameworks. Through her work, Rhonda explores the intersection of curriculum, creativity, and adolescent learners. And Rhonda, you really have to tell me how you pronounce uh, where it is that you live. Oh, Kitchener. It's Kitchener. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, it kind of looks like kitchen and then the er at the end, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Like we're more Kitchener than anyone else, right? Yeah. We have more kitchen. <laughs> All right. So take it away, Rhonda. Okay, thank you. Uh, so I'll just explain a few things on this title slide here. The picture that you see on the left is from a miniature golf course that a grade eight students created. And the one on the right is actually MC Escher pillows that they created. And then the one in the center is going to be the narrative for me to go through this project-based learning journey that I've been on. And one other thing that I just wanted to point out is there's two websites there. That's on purpose. Uh, the first website, the misherget.weebly.com, was actually like I'm currently not in the classroom. I'm currently in a consultant position, um, as Lee explained. So the misherget.weebly.com was the website that I used when I was in the classroom. And it has quite a few of the projects that the STEM projects that we did in grade seven and eight classes. And then the website under that is the one that I'm now using. So if you want um, a copy of this presentation or a copy of the unit outline as I go through it, you can just visit that rondahewer.wordpress.com and uh, send me a contact and I will uh, send you any information that you are hoping to get. So then one other thing you might notice is there's two different last names there, which is kind of, uh, it's actually not a funny story, but it leads to a funny story. So when I was teaching, I was actually uh, Rhonda Herget, and now that I'm not teaching anymore, I'm Rhonda Hewer. And so that was by way of a divorce. And what's kind of comical, even though you wouldn't think that's a comical thing, is um, an email got sent out after the summer that I changed my name back to all of the secondary schools saying, you know, contact Rhonda Hewer, and then they put in brackets like AKA Rhonda Herget. And so then as I was going to into all of the schools, 
I was getting from all the principals and vice principals like big congratulations because I think they thought it went the other way. But I was like, no, nah, it's kind of, you know, it went backwards the other way. So anyway, so that's why there's two last names that we've moved on with life and returned back to the uh, birth name. So, um, so creating an inclusive environment through project-based learning, clearly this is an in-classroom uh, in classroom discussion. And it, that seemed like a really good idea in February. And who would have thought that between now and February, we would be living in this new world of social distancing and self-isolation. So I'm super stoked that all of you managed to come out tonight. And in this new world, I've compiled myself a list of things when back in February, I never thought I would have heard in a business meeting, but now seem to be the norm for every business meeting that I'm in. So I'm going to share that list with you. Sorry, I couldn't get my mic working. Sorry, I was late. I was having internet issues. Can everyone please mute themselves? Hello? Hello? Colleagues, kids screaming in the background. Am I frozen? Hi, can everyone hear me? Sorry, I was on mute. Can everyone see my screen? The answer to that question is we really have no idea. And yes, the all time favorite one is everyone wearing pants. So who would have thought that that is uh, what the discussions and business meetings would now become only two months after February. Uh, so I am very honored and gifted with your time tonight. And after full days of staring at screens and participating in online calls, I fully understand what a luxury downtime is. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. My goal here tonight is to take you through my own journey of how uh, project-based learning made its way into my math classroom and my heart. So when I first started teaching 16 years ago, the push at that time was to be doing authentic problem-solving in math class. And the way that you were to make it authentic was by connecting it to the student's world. So I'm prepared for this. I go into class. I've got an awesome math problem ready to go. It's completely connecting to what happened last week in our school. And here it is. So yesterday was crazy hair day. Out of the 30 students in my class, half are girls. Two thirds of the girls and three fifths of the boys crazied up their hair yesterday. How many students had crazy hair? And I'm like the best teacher ever because this is totally connecting to their world. And then Ryan, who sits at the very back of the class, puts up his hand and he says, I, yo, Ms. Hergett, wouldn't it have been easier for you just to count the number of students who had crazy hair? And, you know, at the time I was like, Ryan, just, you know, do the math. But the more I got thinking about it, the more I'm like, he's completely right. I'm trying to give them a real world context. And he's just demonstrated the most efficient and authentic way of solving this problem. Never in the real world would I talk in terms of fractions about how many girls of how many students in the class uh, had crazy hair day. So that this kind of problem solving that we do with students leads to this kind of interpretation of what math is. And now this becomes what students in society define to be math, that it makes no sense and it's disconnected from everything that we possibly do in the world. So, uh, problems with these types of problems is that they're dumbed down math. Uh, they give the illusion that math is neat and it can be summed up and solved in one hour, which is very unrealistic. 
and they mainly only focus on one concept. And usually that concept has been practiced in class so many times that students are not thinking about just pulling the numbers out of the problem and using whatever operation we've been focusing on over the last week or two. And then when that problem is solved, we move on to the next, which also gives the teacher a disillusion that students are really understanding it because within this time frame that we did the unit, the students did excellent on all the word problems. They did excellent on the test. They must understand this concept. When reality, if you gave them the same type of question out of context, two or three months later, there's a good chance that the students would not have retained this information because it's not mirroring the examples that you are doing on the board right now. So this is more um, assessing compliance than problem solving. <clears throat> so when we are talking about real life to students, this is what we are showing them in school, when in reality, real life looks like this. The math strands combine, it strands with other areas of the curriculum. So here's a quote uh, from Stephen Stragatz, who's a professor of applied mathematics at Cornell University. And this quote really struck me to relook at the types of things I was asking students. If you follow the rules, you can do pretty much everything that's expected of you without ever having to think. This is not the, the way math should be taught, even at an elementary level. If you have never been asked to struggle with open-ended non-cookbook problems, your command of math will always be shaky and shallow. It's crucial to help our students realize that it's fine to get stuck. After all, the life of a professional mathematician or any other creative person is about being stuck nearly all the time. It's how you get past being stuck that matters. And that's one of the most valuable lessons that math has to offer. And as I was, as I read that and was thinking about it, it's like, I don't really think I was giving my students an opportunity to struggle and be comfortable in the area of struggle. I think I was spoon feeding them these things in, in good intent to set them up for success. Okay, so I need to create an experience for my students where it's not cookbook and they'll bring their own strategies and tools to think mathematically. So that leads to projects. So this particular project was using spaghetti noodles. This, at this time, I was teaching grade five and uh, there was a summative project at the end of the, of the unit in the textbook that had students creating um, a map to an imaginary place using spaghetti noodles to create their roads. So I pre-taught the measurement unit in a fairly traditional way and then with loads of excitement, I introduced what I now refer to as the train wreck of 2005. So students um, got all their spaghetti noodles. I was super stoked about it. I'm gonna incorporate it with mapping skills. I'm gonna call it cross-curricular. Well, the actual measurement component, so the math part of this, ended up taking the students about 20 minutes to figure out, but the spaghetti map lasted a good two weeks. And were the kids engaged? Absolutely. Uh, were they learning academically the expectations that I was hoping would get mastered? Absolutely not. It was two weeks of spaghetti wars, mess, Bristol board, custodians not being happy with me. And it all came down to resulting in me marking 27 different train tracks 
measuring out each one until three in the morning and then realizing that some students didn't actually get it. And so now what was I supposed to do with that? The unit was over, we were moving on to the next math class. Well, I hope next year they get it was basically <clears throat> the way we had to go about that. So connect to their world, math problems didn't work. The summative project didn't work. And on top of that, I was noticing um, more and more diverse needs in my classroom. So I'm back now to a grade seven and eight math classroom. This is the area I feel where, and so I'm in Ontario, Canada, we have streaming in grade nine. So in grade seven and eight, this is sort of the last time that all these students are together in one classroom so the gaps are becoming enormous by that point and lots of behavior issues plus adolescent hormones so here's nathan nathan was been diagnosed on the autism spectrum he struggles in math and he works on grade level work that's a couple of years below the rest of the class but he does not like to leave the classroom for extra supports the students don't really like collaborating with Nathan because he starts to act silly in an attempt to get everyone to laugh because he's struggling with the math and he doesn't want anyone to know that. And since he uh, has trouble reading social cues, he doesn't really know when to stop being silly. So as a result, a math class causes a great deal of anxiety for Nathan. This is Katie. Katie is who I refer to as the ultimate grade gamer. She has mastered the game of school. She's considered to be one of the school's brightest. She shows up regularly to class. She takes the neatest notes and performs well on all assignments and tests. And as long as you provide her with lots of examples and review sheets, and the test mimics the review sheets, she does really, really, really well. Uh, she does not think outside of the box at all. She does not like open-ended questions or learning through problem-solving tasks where the teacher has not shown her how to think about the concept first. This is Jacob. So Jacob legitimately is too brilliant for school. He rarely completes any of his tasks or assignments because he sees no purpose in having to write anything out when he can just tell you how he got the answer. And he always gets the answer. He's bored for 80% of his school day. The only time he's not bored is when teachers allow him to work on coding because he's already mastered what they are doing in class. Okay, this, these are three students who are working at a modified grade level. And so to all of that, add in another 20 students who are struggling to learn the grade level material. This is a teacher's life. Oh, and don't forget, there's some friendly reminders coming. All the things that we Like, seriously, if you were ever curious why you're exhausted at the end of the school day, I think this slide says it all. And I can't see your faces, but I hope you are thoroughly impressed with this slide because it took me like a good half hour to create all of these animations. <clears throat> So uh, the question, let's just summarize what we're at here. The needs of the modern day classroom are diverse. The demands on a teacher are complex and many. And authentic problem solving is not found in superficial word problems, even if they are about a student's real world or summative project. So the question then is, how do we meet all these demands and needs while challenging all students in an inclusive environment? And one answer is project-based learning.
So this is a graphic um, from the pblworks.org website, which is a wealth of information. If you don't already know about them, I highly recommend you check them out. And um, they are like the pioneers of project-based learning. And this, um, to, to get a what they refer to as a gold standard project-based learning task, you need to have all of these elements in place. So looking at the learning goals, the main idea behind project-based learning is uh, what do you want your students to know and understand and what skills are they going to use to demonstrate that? So it starts um, on the kind of top left side of the circle and obviously it's not a linear thing. So it's interwoven within each section of the project-based learning, but the project is framed by a meaningful or challenging question is the start of it. Uh, the sustained inquiry piece means that it's happening throughout the entire unit. It's not something that's tacked on to the end of the unit. It is something that all of the learning is embedded in this project. So whatever we are learning about is um, to aid us with moving the project forward. There needs to be authenticity to it. Um, that means like something that the students can connect with and something that's usually hands-on or has genuine meaning behind it. There should be some student voice and choice integrated throughout the project. Reflection is part of the process, so it's embedded and happens throughout. It's not just something that happens at the end of the cycle. So when I was uh, running project-based learning, excuse me, projects, um, we would have reflection circles every week just to touch base as a whole class and see where we're at and what people are feeling and to try and problem solve each other's ideas. Feedback and then opportunity to use that feedback to improve their learning is a vital component of it and is really probably the most important part of it is assessing um, how they are learning and how they are using their feedback to uh, improve their learning. And it needs to be some form of a public product. So it needs to go beyond your own classroom walls. It's not a presentation to the rest of the class or the teachers, or now that's just uh, a summative project at the end or a research project. So there needs to be some sort of an authentic audience that's going to gain something from the project that you are working on. And one more graphic that I really like that I won't go through in too much detail from PBL Works is uh, this dessert versus main course. So it's, again, it's just reiterating the fact that project-based learning is not something that happens at the end. It is the learning itself. And uh, you can maybe, I'll just give you a minute maybe to read over the comparisons between the dessert and the main course. So teaching science, project-based learning was really, really easy to integrate into the science curriculum. And trying to think about what it would look like in a math classroom became a little bit more complex. And being a rotary teacher, I didn't teach all of my math students science and I didn't teach all my science students math. So thinking about that STEM piece 
I was able to do it with a couple classes that I taught both science and math too, but because of the limited amount of time that you had science, it was really hard to build in some rich math into some of the projects that we were working on in science. Um, but it is tricky to try and think about how to do it in math and how to do it so that you're not going beyond what curriculum expectations are, but that you're still challenging students um, to create something that's authentic and real. So I'm going to share with you um, my process of going through this and my one attempt, I did it many times in math, but my one attempt to do it using the geodesic dome project. So the process that I used, um, so step one, you start with the grade level content you want students to learn, and then step two, what skills in math can be met in this project. So I know this is what all research says we should be doing, and all universal design and backwards design tells us that you always go to your curriculum or standards first. This I actually struggled with quite a bit. I tried to do it this way, and I found it really, really difficult, probably because I was tunneling my vision into one particular strand of math or one area of math. But when I was looking at the curriculum and trying to decide what would be a great project to hit this math, these math expectations, it wasn't meshing for me. I was becoming overwhelmed. I wasn't finding anything that I felt was truly authentic. So I ended up adding a step before step one, and that was just coming up with ideas, like finding math in the real world and looking around and, and then going to the curriculum to see like, if I was gonna pull math out of this idea, you know, what would be those expectations that would best connect with this project that I was doing. So I started looking around and I have three children at home who are really great for me to watch and see where are their interests and where to become engaged and where are they caught up in flow. And I was watching them one day, one Saturday building a fort and like the entire day went away from them as they were building this fort. And so I started thinking, well, what could that look like in the classroom? which led to this idea of, hey, maybe we could build a geodesic dome in the classroom. So I started talking to some grade one teachers about whether they would like to have a reading center in their classrooms in the shape of a dome. And they loved this idea and they were willing to help in any way that they could. So then I started investigating the dome a little bit deeper and there's some really, really complex math involved with building a dome, but there can also be some really, really simplistic math involved with creating a dome as well. <clears throat> so um, I found a dis distributor just outside of the small town that I live in that had triple corrugated cardboard who said I could have as much of it as I wanted. So I'm like, I think I could probably build this geodesic dome out of corrugated cardboard. So it was at that point then that I start, went to the curriculum and thought, okay, what math could we actually pull out of this dome that would be grade appropriate for the students that um, I was working with at the time? And what skills do I want the students to be uh, using? And really in the end, all these are called our process expectations, the colorful stripes over here. Um, they are embedded in the Ontario math curriculum and all of those were gonna get hit because it was gonna be such a rich task. So I'm gonna share with you now, uh, let me just find it here, sorry, there we go. Uh, so this is the geodesic dome outline and if you are interested in getting a copy of this, you can go to the Rhonda Hewer website and just 
send me, oh, hey, please, can you send me that geodesic dome outline and I'll have no problem sharing it with you. These are, I was teaching both grade seven and grade eight. So what you're seeing here are the grade seven expectations that I pulled out of the curriculum. And then these are the grade eight expectations that I pulled out of the curriculum that we would end up hitting by doing this geodesic dome. And what the surprise was, was we actually ended up hitting way more than these expectations. We have five strands of math in Ontario and I ended up hitting all five strands of math. And a really interesting story is um, there's a data, a probability and data management strand. And I was not, so this is me before we even started, you know, doing my front load, my front end planning for this. And I didn't even take into consideration data management. I wasn't even thinking about that. The ones that you see here are the only ones I was thinking we would hit. And it, in one of our reflection circles, uh, one of the students said, how are we going to know if the dome is tall enough for the grade one students? And um, that led to another student saying, yeah, you're right, we should probably go measure the grade one students to find out what the height of our dome should be. So they took a, a class, they went down, they measured all the students, and then the, the next class that we returned to was full of this really great rich debate around whether they should use mode, median, or mean. And in all my years of teaching, those three central tendencies Never before has there been such meaning brought to those three terms as that class trying to figure out and arguing, like great arguing debates over, well, I think it should be mode because that's like the, the most. No, I think it should be the mean because that will give us the average. And it was such an amazing thing to just step back and watch these students putting, putting their math knowledge to the test and um, making sense of these three terms. <clears throat> so other the point of that is other expectations got added ones that I wasn't even prepared for or didn't see but um, ended up making their way out okay so once you have written down your expectations and the skills that you are looking um, to pull out of this project you need to determine the knowledge piece so in our curriculum, we have four areas of achievement that we need to assess. So there's knowledge and understanding, there's thinking, there's application and communication. So what I mean by the knowledge piece is kind of those skills and concepts that students um, need to be able to have to do deeper, richer thinking. So uh, here's just a graphic I created to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. So the big ideas on the left were coming from that math curriculum or your, your standards. Um, the recursive focus then are those skills and concepts, that knowledge piece. Um, and it's recursive because it's something that students are going to have to use throughout the entire project, throughout the entire year, and they're foundational skills. So it's something that I, I would be revisiting throughout the entire year, regardless of whether I was doing project-based learning or not. And so th in that area, I pulled out all of my um, knowledge assessment. And then the application thinking communication came when they were using those skills in the project work. So no more of those fraction, crazy hair day word problems. Now it was embedded in the creation of this geodesic dome. And 
just making sure I'm not missing anything. Oh, right. So the recursive piece would get introduced. Oh, I'm going to give you an example of a first before I get into when it would be introduced. So here would be an example. So the big idea from the curriculum would be we need to address circumference, perimeter of a circle, developing circumference and area relationships for a circle. So the recursive focus that I would pull out of that, those knowledge, skills and concepts that I would pull out of that would be determining how do you get circumference and how do you get area of circles and converting metric units of area. So that would be something that I would have them practice. And I'm gonna show you where I would have them practice that in a moment. But then in the project piece, the application part of that and the thinking part is what an example would be, what must the size of the dome base be to efficiently fill the provided classroom space? Or based on the provided classroom space, what can be the greatest diameter of the base of the dome to ensure all the sides of the dome remain in the confined space? And then there would also be calculations involved from the scaled model and the actual classroom space. So there's the... Um, point blank skills. I want them to be able to know how to calculate circumference and area of a circle, but then I want them to be able to apply it in this real authentic setting. And so these recursive focuses, I would do in the class about a week before they would actually hit that part of the project, a week to two weeks before. So they would be practicing these skills. And then when the project naturally made it to that time space where they were going to have to use these skills, they had already had a chance to practice the skill itself. Okay, um, so what and how will you assess? Oh, sorry, I just wanted to show you one other thing. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so here in the dome outline, here is the, it's called the minds on order in the outline. So this would be the recursive pieces. So I've listed ahead of time. These would be all of the skills that I want them uh, to be able to do proficiently um, as part of the project and that, that we pulled out and we practiced for skills and concepts. So you can see all 11 of them there. One of them was for grade eight only because we don't address circles in grade seven. Okay, so now step five, what and how will you assess all of this? So what is it that I want to know about what students know and understand and how will I gather this information? So I used the triangulation of data. So there was a lot of work for this project or any of the projects that I have done in math or science um, ahead of time. And all of that energy and time that went in prior to me starting the project actually saved me huge amounts of time at the end. So instead of spending all this time marking like I used to, all, all of the assessment for the most part, except for the products, happened while I was right in the classroom. So I had tracking sheets, um, I had check-ins, weekly check-ins, where we were um, giving them like little quizzes on those recursive focus pieces. Um, and that led to small group instruction. So based on how they were doing on those check-ins, I would be pulling some small groups aside to do some um, more one-on-one -on -one or small group instruction. Um, I had small group conferences all the time with students during the project piece so that I could see what their level of understanding was. And it required clear success criteria, clear learning goals, and if you look back, if we go back here, you'll see throughout this um, document, 
there's assessment focuses built in throughout each of the areas about the, what I would be focusing on in that part of the project. So some of the stuff was handed in for marking, other stuff was uh, really just observations and conversations as I watched them in the classroom, which took quite a bit away from the marking actually. And I knew my students better than I had ever known them before with less marking. So there's a plus for you. Okay, um, so step six, we're gonna map out the learning now. So you're going to make an outline, the one that I've kind of been showing you. And here is how I structured my week. So in day one, uh, day two, day three, so it's into five day blocks. For the first 15 minutes of each day, I would be focusing on those knowledge and understanding of foundational concepts. So that would be, um, I might put a couple questions up on the board. There might be a mini lesson that I was doing with them. It might be a number talk. It might be um, them working in small groups on something, but it was like a really simple, we're just going to touch base. And then every Friday, they had a check-in on that concept that we had been working on all week. And then that concept that we've been working on all week, they were going to have to be able to do that proficiently in the next couple of weeks when that came up into the project. So the first 15 minutes, and it would be a it would be a one hour block. First 15 minutes were spent on that. And then the next 45 minutes were spent on, it could be a number of things that were happening. There was lots of different roles. So students were busy. They all knew how um, where their learning had to go that day. And while that was all happening, I could be doing small group instruction. They were doing self-assessment. There was lots of um, proposal, part of a proposal that they had to write up. So they might have a section of that that they were working on. Um, they would be working on their own self-assessment. Um, I might also be pulling some small groups back to do some, some consolidation of some concepts. Sometimes in that 45 minute block is when we would have our reflection circles or, or if something just arose from doing some small group conferences, then we would say like, I think next class we need to have a reflection circle and it might be five or 10 minutes, but it was enough that, hey, this group has run into this problem. How can we problem solving this? Has anybody else run into this problem? Lots of sharing and lots of experimentation. And it was actually funny because um, my vice principal came in to the classroom and I was in the back corner with somebody, they didn't know where I was. They couldn't see me. I, I guess I'm so youthful looking, I blended with the rest of the students. But she commented that, um, she commented like, you don't even need to be in this room. Like this room is totally self-sufficient. Like she couldn't believe how well it, uh, these students were just taking direction of their own learning and knew exactly what they had to do and what they had to focus on and were so engaged in the learning. So I might've been working myself out of a job on that one, make myself obsolete. Okay, step seven, you're gonna set the conditions for an inclusive environment. So the way I did that was I created project roles. So differentiated instruction is, is a necessity, but sometimes really hard in math. So when you're dealing with, um, students who are learning to multiply fractions and you still have students in there who are just representing a fraction to try and find a problem that's going to meet both of those needs is really hard to do and make it all inclusive and open. So um, these are the roles that I created for this project. And what it ended up doing was allowing 
the strengths of each student to rise. So if you remember back um, to those students I showed you at the very beginning, Katie, who was my type A personality, the ultimate uh, grade gamer, was the project manager. And it blended beautifully into her personality. It allowed her an opportunity to kind of be in charge of things that she wasn't losing control. Um, she touched base with me. Part of her job was to report weekly to me. So she was a project manager of her group. And, um, and that brought her, that took away a lot of her anxiety for this type of an environment, because this was not an environment that was conducive to her way of learning and to the game of school that she's been used to playing up to this point. Um, Jacob, so Jacob was my student who like really should have probably been in grade 10. Um, he was the assembly foreman and that set him up beautifully because he was able to oversee all of the pieces that had to come together for this dome for his group. He was um, doing lots of managing. He had to see like the big picture of things and make sure the math from that piece was gonna connect with the math from this piece. So that engaged him. But the, the greatest success story out of all of this was my Nathan. So Nathan was uh, my student who had been diagnosed on the autism spectrum. And I made him the quality assurance for his group. And the quality assurance meant that he was going to check all the angles and side measurements once pieces were cut to ensure proper fit. And he blossomed at this. So the math that he was doing was perfect for his ability at the time. He didn't have any stress that he was going to mess something up and that the rest of the, like, the pieces weren't going to fit together because he was actually measuring angles and sides that had already been cut. And they started to refer to him as the godfather in a really good way. They were, they used to like be like, oh, here it goes. It's, it's gotta, it's gotta pass by Godfather Nathan first. And I, let's make sure that we've got this right. And the level of respect for him from other students rose significantly. And he started loving math class. I got um, phone calls from his mother in tears that this was like the first time Nathan has ever been excited about something that was happening in school and that he felt really, really successful. And at the same time, I was able to assess him on math concepts that uh, were, were perfectly leveled to his independent education plan. Um, but he was allowed to stay in the classroom and he was a major part of this project that we were working on. And he was... Um, he stopped acting silly because he was so caught up in the work that he had to do and the responsibilities that he had in this role that um, all of that silly behavior that was anxiety ridden and just trying to get attention uh, disappeared because he was getting such positive attention from the rest of the class. And, and they would be yelling like, hey, Nathan, can you come check this? I, can you check this before I have to cut it? I want to make sure it's looking OK. So that was that was an awesome, positive part of this. Uh, step eight, you need to find a hook. So how will you get the students excited about this idea? So my hook is right here. I probably would change this now that I've done it a couple times. So I had watch a house on the prairie movie, um, not a little house on the prairie. It was like this actual movie about them building a dome on the prairie. And there was some clips on Learn360, which is one of our um, video our board's video sites of domes at the beginning of each class. And then I gave them some homework that they needed to find a minimum of five domes outside the classroom. 
and then in their desk grouping, share the domes they found from the previous day's work. But what actually ended up happening now as a hook, like as I did it more and more years, was um, like those little grade one class students who had this dome in their classroom, that was the hook. They couldn't then wait till they were in grade seven or eight, and then they would be asking like, hey, can we build a dome like they did last year? So the hook kind of naturally um, created itself for this one. Okay, and then step nine, the hardest one for teachers, just get out of the way and let the students learn. Um, too often, we don't think they're capable of some really, really rich learning. And if we step back and trust the process and trust the forward thinking um, that you've invested and be open to the fact that that its course will change as the project takes on life, um, when you get out of the way, some really amazing learning happens, but I'm I'm not going to talk. I'm going to show you a video that was actually created. <clears throat> so if you remember back at the rules there, one of the rules was documentary director so uh, and technical writer. So these two students in their group were responsible for creating um, a documentary of the learning journey that they went on as they built this geodesic dome so that we could share it with other people. So what you are about to see, and I'm hoping the video works no problem, is um, kind of a mashup of these these domes that were created. So in my class, I ended up that I had equal numbers of female and male in the class, and they decided they wanted to split in that way. So we had a, a girls group and a boys group. And uh, two geodesic domes then ended up getting created. So the, the girls dome was called Kerbit, and the boys dome was called the Dino Dome. So as you're watching the documentary, you're gonna kind of see both of those um, domes being represented. So just so that you don't get confused by that. And uh, full disclaimer that this was completely created by students. So no easy on your judgment and including the song choice. So if you want the soundtrack, I'll leave that in your hands to figure out. So here we go, let's, my fingers are crossed on this one. Got a package full of wishes A time machine, a magic wand A globe made out of gold No instructions or commandments Laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold Printed on the box I see Acme's build a world to be Take a chance, grab a piece Help me to believe it What kind of world do you want? Think it, think Let's start at the start Style, which is like the textbook style uh, You're normally sitting down and just doing paperwork and stuff And for me, I don't remember stuff near as well when we do that um, You're never really out of your seat doing hands-on but for uh, the inquiry style, you're always up. You're like interacting with other people and uh, like discussing. It's more not a just like by yourself thing. It's more um, with a group, and it's um, hands on as well. Keep the ball, build the ocean without the song. 
most that's how I learned the most from is like the first step. So like when we built the giant domes for the grade ones and twos, it was the little dome that we first built to see what size each shape needs to be, how tall the dome is, how much space it will take up. That was probably the first like the best step you should do. Problem solving, like in the domes, if something went wrong, we had to figure out what to do. Like if um, something didn't fit together right, we had to figure out how to make it fit together. And it's uh, really helpful. I think I learned more from inquiry than textbook. Thank you. 
Safari helped me because like I used to get like C's, C pluses, and now I'm getting A's and B's a lot more, and it's just a lot more funner, and it helped me a lot. So, in case you didn't know, funner was a word. There you go. Um, so some facts about that. The project timeline went from October to winter break. Uh, so about two and a half months and it touched on all five math strands deeply. There was uh, another like a another grade eight math class in the same school that only covered three strands in the same time frame. And uh, following the students into their grade nine years, so they go to a different school in grade nine into a high school, uh, the majority of the students were performing at level three or higher in both streams of math. <clears throat> so the surprise for me was this was actually a comment from some of the kids. They didn't want to leave the math classroom. They wanted to stay in there and not go to any other subject areas or nutrition breaks. They, um, they were super willing to take risks because this was not a right or wrong answer. And they, they saw very quickly into the process that um, failure was going to be a successful part of building this dome. Um, they started having some really, really great debates amongst themselves that I would hear. They had um, all the skill sets were like all the different learning style, styles and individual skill sets were brought to the surface. And yeah, failure was an acceptable part of our day. So thinking back to, oh, and I would, I would come in from like lunch breaks and find all sorts of stuff written all over my whiteboard that they had been spending their lunch break trying to figure something out for the dome. So there was all sorts of math and shapes and drawings happening on the whiteboard that they were uh, trying to figure something out for the next day. So um, yeah, remember this original fraction problem that we talked about earlier, this authentic connected to the world. So here's the same math but in the so they ended up doing almost the exact same problem so to build your prototype we have enough cardboard that two groups can share one piece within your group you need to share your half of the cardboard evenly amongst three pairs what is the maximum amount of cardboard you have to build your prototype with so the exact same question but much more meaning and context behind it um so if you are thinking of engaging in this type of learning you will encounter some resistance and your number one resistor is going to be Katie, that student who knows how to play the game and doesn't doesn't like that you're changing the game on her because she likes to see how you do the math so she can completely mimic your way of doing the math, which really makes you question what those A's were actually um, representing if she was getting all A's but wasn't able to actually think mathematically. Um, parents, We'll give you some pushback. The way I got around that is on the meet the teacher night, I would always have an information night. So um, instead of a lineup at my classroom for them just to talk to me, I had sessions where they came in and I would just talk pedagogy to them. And when you start talking pedagogy to parents, parents actually realize you're a professional and they trust what you're gonna be doing with your their child. Uh, you might get some pushback from admin, but you really, I think if you are transparent with admin and you talk to them about what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it, um, you really want them on your side. 
so they can support you with parents um that they can actually because you're going to need some extra resources as well and some materials they can get creative with the timetabling um they can provide time for you to collaborate um and just to have that permission for you to like you know try to experiment with a different way of going about learning uh colleagues so i didn't really have any pushback from any of my colleagues but i could foresee that you might get some pushback from colleagues so my grade eight students leave and go to another school um, i imagine some of those grade nine teachers were thinking i probably wasn't doing a really great job of teaching math until they started to see that the students did understand the math um, but you might get some pushback from colleagues feeling pressure to do the same thing that you're doing if students are really enjoying it and parents are really seeing the benefits of it and students from other classes started telling my students that you're not you may yeah you might be having fun and you might be engaged but you're not actually learning math so you probably won't do really well next year in high school so uh the way i remedied that was i just educated my own students about how this was preparing them and i would put a question on the board and they would be able to answer it and i'd be like see you got it so making it very transparent about what they've learned so where do you go now? There is some really rich resources out there. PBL Works, as I mentioned earlier, is an amazing resource full, full of stuff. Um, AJ, AJ Giuliani provides a free PDF playbook that is super helpful in um, taking you through process and steps. High Tech High has some great project ideas that you can probably steal and borrow from them. And uh, sometimes math textbooks, like not that spaghetti noodle train track but there are some really great problems in math textbooks that you could just pull that problem out of the math textbook and turn it into something much bigger problem is they always come at the end so you you can turn that into a magic so that is it for me um thank you so much for giving me your time tonight uh, again if you are wanting to get in touch with me to get any of these resources please go to the rondahuer.wordpress.com website if you want to see some of the projects that I have done with students, you can go to the misherget.weebly.com. And if you wanted to follow me on Twitter, I'll follow you back and then we can be best Twitter friends. So thank you very, very much. And uh, I hope you have a great evening. Oh, uh, Rhonda, we have uh, several questions that uh, people oh. have posted in the chat. So okay. um, I'm going to stop sharing then. Is that um, okay if I stop sharing? Fine, yeah. Okay. And then um, okay. if you wanted to put your webcam on at this point so people can see your face, that's fine too. <laughs> okay. Um, probably that. So um, a couple of questions were about like, like what is, how many are in a typical class and kind of what are the demographics of your class? <clears throat> oh, so I've done it in many different schools and I, I've had um, classes vary from, like 31 students down to 24 students. And obviously the less students I have, the easier it is for me to be able to navigate it. But I was also able to do it. Those roles really make a difference when you put those roles in place. Um, the demographics I've gone from, like the, the actual documentary that you saw there, I had uh, David Martin Mennonites in that class. Um, but that class was probably, like a middle socioeconomic class, but I have been in other schools where I've had a much lower socioeconomic class and they were probably my richest thinkers, if if that probably doesn't surprise many of you out there, because <laughs> they are problem solvers in their in their lives. 
A couple other questions. Uh, one was, um, how were the skills addressed in advance of the project? Um, teaching these skills without encouraging practice of procedures. So I guess just how were skills that they might have needed uh, for the project yep. addressed? Um, so that was in that recursive piece. And um, you know what? Some of it was done traditional. It was really based on what I felt the students needed at the time. So some of them were just me doing a quick little lesson for them. Some of them was like a really quick um, kind of minds on piece that I would have them talk about in pairs and then we would deconstruct and continue to build off throughout the week. Um, so that that took a different shape depending on what the concept was and what um, where the class was at at that time. So if it was something that I know they had spent a lot of time on in grade seven, then it was it was more like, hey, I just want you to remember this skill and practice it. If it was something brand new to them, then I, I went through the process. And sometimes, you know, um, it wasn't everyday full project. Sometimes there would be like, hey, you know what? I'm noticing that many of you are struggling in this area. So we're gonna stop. And today we're just going to like focus in on this and we're gonna put the project aside for today. Okay, and uh, there was a couple people that were asking about, um, you know, if if the presentation is available for sharing. I guess I don't know if they would wanted to like get the presentation. Um, yeah, I can totally share that. If they just send me, send me, I can share them. I'll just take a. They just can't have that video, but I can definitely share the presentation. Okay, and what's the the best way for them to to get a hold of you through Twitter or um, if they go. They could either go Twitter, but that rondahewer.wordpress.com has a contact page. And if they fill that contact page out, then I'll have their email and everything and be able to get back to them. Got it. Yeah. And I did post uh, Rhonda's website um, at the sticky note that's in blue there at the top of the chat. Um, if you didn't catch her saying that again. Um, I guess one other question, um, and maybe you did address this like as you were you were uh, presenting, um, but just in case you didn't address it, so that's enough for this person. One question that came up early, a little bit early on, maybe halfway through, was how do you work with group versus individual learning accountability? Uh, can you guys say it one more time? Uh, group versus individual learning accountability. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, so that was really like, that's where those conversations, observations are so hugely important. And those check-ins were important. So, um, everything that the students got assessed on was what I could see that they were able to do uh, independently. Plus each student had to submit a business proposal for the dome. And within that business proposal, I had a lot of the math outlined in there that they needed to do in order to say like, here's my design or here's why this design works. So a lot of independent accountability happened um, during the assessment process on all of that. And in that outline, it, it outlines um, all of those moments okay um are there any other questions for our presenter i think i caught them all um but if there's any other uh, questions feel free to post them in the chat here in the next 30 seconds all right i'd like to uh, thank you rana very much for presenting and being here tonight um Next week, we are going to be hearing from Sunil Singh. Um, Sunil has been a presenter with us before. Um, he'll be speaking on utilizing math history to embrace equity, failure, and authentic problem solving in leadership communities 
and the recommended grade level for that is K to 12. So I hope some of you will be able to return for that presentation. So thank you very much. Everyone have a wonderful evening. Have a great night, everybody.